Good morning again. We are in John 3 this morning, and this is a pretty well-known passage. Uh, This week and next week, we will be covering probably pretty well-known terrain if you've had much exposure to the church. One thing to note as we start this, though, is that this begins something, a unique pattern within the Gospel of John that's unique from all the other Gospels. In uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, oftentimes when Jesus interacts with other people, he talks to the crowd, or he talks to a group of the Pharisees, or other religious leaders, or the disciples as a group. Uh, The disciples occasionally have Peter speak up as a spokesman, but for the most part, he interacts with them in groups. And even a few of the other interactions that he has that are with individuals tend to be in pretty public settings. And so the, the dynamic with the crowd is always in play. But in the Gospel of John, there are a number of very specific one-on-one conversations that Jesus has with individuals. Uh, and that is a pretty unique feature of it. Um, and I think it really it's helpful to understand because that changes to some degree how we understand what's happening here, that this is a specific conversation that Jesus is having with an individual. So let's pick up uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's pray as we go to the Word. Father, we thank You that You give us Your Word so that we can know You, that it is Your great gift, that we might not guess our way toward You, but rather receive what you have given in your word through the work of your son. So make it clear to us 
In Jesus' name, amen. With the opening ceremonies of the Olympics, uh, I noted once again a pattern that seems to go on in these opening ceremonies. Uh, They love to do a rendition of John Lennon's Imagine. I don't know if you've noticed. I don't know if it's I didn't go back and do research on every single opening ceremonies, but it always comes up. And you know, you know, you're probably familiar with the words. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine there's no countries. I think that's where the Olympics piece comes in. Uh, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to. Of course, he goes on to say, you may say that I'm a dreamer but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. So, you know, that's kind of the heady mix of, you know, all of John Lennon's favorite things, right? You know, a little, little bit of Eastern religion, a little Marxism, a little bit of his own Messiah complex. Uh, I love John Lennon, by the way, as a songwriter. And it is a beautiful song. It really is. And what's fascinating is, you know, it, it, it did exactly what John wanted it to do and stoked the ire of religious folks uh, when he wrote it in the early 70s and has continued to stoke that ire. But I think the thing that's interesting now when I hear that song, and I think particularly in the Western world and how secularized we become, I think rather than raising anger, it makes it sadder and sadder every time I hear it. Because while the first part of his dream has come largely to pass, that we no longer really think much about heaven above or hell below, that has not made us any more peaceful. In fact, it has, it seems in the absence of God, we have to make idols of other things. You know, politics being, of course, one of them. In the absence of God, we are searching for meaning. And I think it's no accident that mental health has been uh, increasingly problematic. It's not the only reason. I don't mean to oversimplify it, but certainly the lack of meaning in our lives is part of the problem. We make idols of career, of love, of parenting. We can go on and on. (laughs) All these things that in the absence of some deep meaning we try to make fill that space. And so, to us, even in the modern world, Jesus starts talking about eternal life, about a life worth living. The question really at the heart of this passage is, what is, it, what is real life like? What is spiritual life? So, that, I mean, so we'll ask, what is spiritual life? We'll ask how we receive it, and we'll ask what it looks like lived out. What is it, what is the sign of real spiritual life? So what is spiritual life, how do we receive it, and what is the sign of it? And of course, all of this takes place in this context of this one-on-one conversation with Nicodemus. Uh, We know a few things about Nicodemus. We know that he's a Pharisee. And I've mentioned before, a Pharisee is not a job, it's an affiliation. It, I mean, a, a bad example, but maybe slightly helpful would be to say, I'm an evangelical Christian. 
Uh, that has you know become a kind of polarized category and politicized category, but it's a it you know supposed to be a way <laughs> of saying, well, I'm somebody who takes God's word seriously and I'm trying to live it out and whatever else we might mean. And again, the associations have become worse. But in the first century, for Nicodemus to be identified as a Pharisee would be say he's would be to say he's someone who's really devout and largely would be respected for that. Then we're told he's a ruler of the Jews. What, the, what this almost certainly means is that he is a ruler of a synagogue. Um, there, by this time, the synagogue system had started to develop within Judaism so that you would have a local synagogue where there would have be a copy of the Torah, copy of God's Word, the Hebrew Bible, uh, you gather to learn and teach, right? And then there was a, still the temple system as well, of course, to go and make sacrifices, but that was one place. Um, the synagogue you could gather in, and to be a ruler of it meant that he was somebody who was wealthy and was a major benefactor of it, and so a prominent voice in the various decisions that they were making. And because he was wealthy, he was also probably pretty well-educated in a world in which education was hard to come by. So, Nick, what we know about Nicodemus is he's an important guy. He's got, he, you know, certainly is wealthy. He probably is somebody with a prominent voice in his community. And he is a person who is devout. But he comes to Jesus at night. Uh, he doesn't want to be seen. That's the pretty obvious implication is he is either afraid of the ramifications or he doesn't know what he's thinking. He comes to Jesus at night because he doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want it to be known that he's talking to, to Jesus. And he, but he does come and he speaks to him respectfully in verse 2. He calls him rabbi. And he admits the thing that we talked about last week that a lot of the other religious leaders were not willing to admit is that Jesus was doing and saying things that only God could do or say. And he admits that there's no real explanation for that other than God must somehow be at work in and through him. So that's important. And it's worth noting too, we know where Nicodemus's story goes. Uh, you might know this story, but I don't know if you know the two other references to Nicodemus in the Gospel of John. One comes up late in chapter 7, where the religious leaders are debating what to do with Jesus, and he speaks up to say, uh, we actually need to give Jesus a fair hearing. And he's kind of shouted down. So we know that even within the... the uh, the operations of the religious leaders, he's starting to speak up a little bit. And then, of course, most importantly, at the end of chapter 19, after Jesus has been crucified and died, and Joseph of Arimathea gets permission to take his body, we're told there's one other person that helps take the body down and put it in the tomb. It's Nicodemus. He's almost certainly a follower of Jesus by that point. It's kind of fascinating to see. And this is the starting point. I mean, this seems to be the conversation that sets his life in a new direction. 
But the conversation is interesting because he starts by saying, we know that you're from God. And Jesus picks that up in verse 3 and says, okay, you want to talk about the kingdom of God? And the kingdom of God is the phrase that Jesus uses in the other gospels most of the time, but doesn't really use a lot in John. He uses it a few times, but he says, if you want to talk about the kingdom of God, then we're going to have to talk about spiritual birth. We're going to have to talk about life by the Spirit. We're going to have to talk about eternal life. That's the phrase he uses by the end in verse 15. Uh, Zoe ionios is the Greek term. And that term ionios, eternal, that's a right translation because it has this idea of the eternality of God. But we're talking about, when we start talking about something being eternal, of course, we're talking about a divine attribute something that is from God. And so, the associations in the Gospel of John that start to build up around this idea of eternal life are not merely a life that goes on, but a life that is worth living, a life that has deep and rich meaning to it. In fact, you know, probably the best place to pick up where this idea of eternal life goes after Jesus' ministry, is to look at Romans 6, and Paul talks about how we have been slaves to sin and how have been made servants of God, and he says the fruit of that is our sanctification and its end, eternal life. Same two words here. So that the idea is the completion of a life, the way you're made godly, is this eternal life. So again, what, what Jesus is talking about, where Jesus steers this whole direction, the whole direction of this conversation is, to, is towards an idea of life that is not merely existence. It is about what a, what a meaningful life is. And that's, that's important for us to understand because in the modern world, again, we are told that we come from a meaningless origin and we go to a meaningless end. Now, I, I, I don't take it that most of us are going around actively thinking about that. <laughs> like, actively thinking about how, you know, we came from some protoplasmic mud, and as the story goes, and we are going to some non-existence. The, you know, you stop breathing, and then whatever your life was, the active firing of the neurons in your brain ends. I don't think most of us are walking around thinking that. And yet, that is the story that we believe, right? And so, we are told that we need to then forge a life, a meaning, under what the 20th century philosopher Bertrand Russell called a scaffolding of unyielding despair. It's a real bummer. Scaffolding of unyielding despair. And what Jesus is insisting is that, in fact, we did not come from a meaningless origin, right? The, the whole Bible teaches that. That this was all from God and that it is going and that those who are reborn go to a meaningful end. And that that meaningful end can start to inform even your life right now. So that your life is not defined by what you achieve, 
but that you have been accepted by God. You see, in the absence of meaning, right, we must do something to produce a meaningful existence. And you can see how some of our contemporary idols rush in, career, family. Of course, we make idols of those things because there's something that we can try to grasp onto to give us meaning. And what Jesus is saying is, you must simply accept that's all. It's a, thing to be, a meaningful life is a thing to be accepted from God, not to be achieved. And it's not that ambition and drive are bad things, but when we do those out of a place of lacking, out of a place of emptiness, then the casualties will be severe. We won't care about who we hurt. We won't care even of the things that we do that are self-destructive, if we can create some sort of meaning for ourselves. But in contrast, when we know that we have been accepted and loved by God, then we can pursue things and take, in one sense, even bigger risks, right? Because we don't have anything to lose in terms of my sense of self. I've been received by God. I can make wise decisions to think about others and their benefit, their well-being. We can think about, you know, what are healthy things to do <laughs> rather than things that I have to get done so that I know that I'm meaningful. This kind of life means then that we have joy and not merely happiness. I mean, people have wondered really since we have records of people thinking about anything, about what makes for a good life, right? What makes for a happy life? Uh, we have, de you know, departments developing in universities now and happiness studies. Uh, there are, there's a regular column in the Atlantic uh, by a Harvard professor about happiness that, you know, there's a new column every week about, about all, this thing, all these things. Of course, what, is, what we're learning is that the ancient wisdom and to some degree the common sense of most people has basically held up. That if you try to make yourself a happy person, if you try to chase the feeling, you will at best have diminishing returns and at worst make destructive decisions. Instead, you have to have some kind of deep meaning to what you're doing, to who you are, and you need some sort of deep connection. And what Jesus promises is just that. I mean, deeper meaning doesn't get any deeper than, you know, the one in whom we live and move and have our being telling us that you're loved. <laughs> There's no deeper, more profound connection. One of the old hymns calls it a, a love divine, all loves excelling. In other words, you know, it goes past all the other loves. It's probably put best in, uh, by Augustine, uh, the famous church father, in his confessions. And this, this is it's a little long, but it's worth it. He says, what am I loving when I love you? The whole of the confessions is framed as a prayer to God. What, was, what do I love when I love you? Not the beauty of body nor transient grace, not this fair light 
which is so now so friendly to my eyes, not melodious songs in all its lovely harmonies, not the sweet fragrance of flowers or ointments or spices, not manna or honey, not limbs that draw me to carnal embrace. None of these do I love when I love my God. And yet, I do love a kind of light, a kind of voice, a certain fragrance, a food and an embrace when I love my God, a light voice, fragrance, food, embrace of my, inner, of my inmost self where something, limit, where something limited to no place shines into my mind where something not snatched away by passing time sings for me where something no breath blows away yields to me its scent where there is savor undiminished by famished eating and where I am clasped in a union from which no satisfaction can tear me away this is what I love when I love my God. I mean, that's eternal life right? that he's describing. That's eternal life that can only be received, not grasped. It is a thing given, not earned. So how do we receive it? And that's the obvious question here. And Jesus starts talking about rebirth, and Nicodemus in verse 4 is confused. And it's a little bit hard to tell, you know, commentators go different ways on this. Is he being sarcastic when he says, well, I can't go into your mother's womb a second time? Or is he pressing the point with Jesus? Like, okay, you're using this metaphor, like, let's follow that metaphor. I, don't, I honestly don't know which it is. <laughs> but he, you know, he's saying, okay, born again, like, what does that mean? And Jesus says you've got to be born not merely by water, but by spirit. And again, this is another point in which the commentators are trying to figure out exactly what Jesus says, because on the one hand, they've been talking about natural birth and now a spiritual birth. So water might be like amniotic fluid in contrast to the spirit. Of course, John the Baptist earlier in the Gospel of John contrasted the baptism by water with the baptism by spirit. In other words, the, it's not merely the sign, but the thing signified that really matters. So, whether it, whichever contrast Jesus is drawing here with water and spirit is not necessarily all that significant because the main point, of course, is that the spirit has to do the work. The Holy Spirit has to show up. It is the spirit that gives the life. Again, not something we've earned, not something we do, but the spirit that shows up. Not by the will of a man or the will of flesh, nor by blood. That's what, he, that's what John tells us back in the prologue. But by God. That's what spiritual life is. And so, in verse 8, Jesus uses an illustration that might be a little confusing in English because he starts, he brings up the wind, right? It blows here, there. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. You can't control it. It's the wind, right? Like, we still can't control the wind. <laughs> like, for all of our scientific endeavors, right? Like, we still don't know how to stop a hurricane. We don't know what it is. Now, what's interesting is that in Greek... It's the same word as spirit. 
The word for spirit, pneuma, also can mean wind. So, this translation is accurate. Jesus is clearly using wind as an illustration. He's using that sense of the word as an illustration for how the spirit works. But the connection would have been much closer in their mind, right? So, in other words, what Jesus is saying is, uh, you, you already know how the spirit is like the wind. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going. You don't know how to control it. You can't control it. That's what, that's what he's saying with that illustration, And the point is, of course, that God's the one who gives this new life, not us. And this is a hard thing to come to terms with. You know, in uh, in theological circles, this is the doctrine of election, right? That God is the one who chooses to act. God's the one who initiates. God's the one who chooses. And this is, a, this, is, uh, this is a hard doctrine. It's a difficult thing to get your head around. I think Nicodemus bucks at it because that's contrary to the way that he had come to think about it, right? It's his initiative that makes sure he stays and has life. And Jesus is saying, it's not that way. It's the Spirit who has to do it. It is God's work, God's initiative. And that really moves us in one of two directions. I think to the degree to which we clamor to have control of our spiritual lives, that sounds monstrous. Because it sounds like control is taken out of my hands. And to some degree, that's true. If we're clamoring for control, we are not going to like to hear about God's initiative and God's choice. We're not going to like to hear about that sort of thing. But for those who don't think that they've ever had much of a shot at control, it's good news. It is comfort. I don't know where this lands with you, but I think one of the key questions to ask myself is, what is it, afraid that, what is it that I'm afraid of giving up if I don't if I'm bucking at this. I'm not saying there aren't some deep questions to ask about it, some hard questions, but ask yourself, what is it that I'm afraid of losing if this is true? And I think almost always it is a sense that I'm the one in control because this dispels that belief. It sheds light on the fact that I'm grasping for something that I can never really get my hands around. I'm grasping after the wind. It certainly cuts against our sensibilities as Americans. We like to believe that we are masters of our own fate. But if we can't master our fate, if we are dead in our transgressions, then somebody better do something about it. (laughs) That's not me. I'm going to need the Lord and giver of life to show up. And Calvin, you know, commenting on this doctrine says, we shall never be clearly persuaded that our salvation flows from God's free mercy until we know his eternal election. 
In other words, what Calvin is putting his finger on is something that's really essential to grasp about this idea that it is God who is sovereign over our salvation. Is that, is that if we go any other direction, if we try to qualify that in some way, we end up saying that, well, if I'm a Christian, then there's something special about me. Maybe there's some special quality that God saw in me. So yeah, he's, he's, he's sovereign, he initiated it, but you know, he knew who was going to be really useful. People like me. Hmm. Well, maybe God's sovereignty isn't really involved at all. Maybe it's my choice. But then that maybe suggests that uh, I'm a little smarter, a little wiser than everybody else. You get the point, right? If we take, if we try to say, well, there's something about me that makes the difference, then we are saying there's something better about us as Christians than everybody else. And Jesus will have none of it. Jesus isn't interested in ways in which you and I think we are better than other people. No, no, no. To think that is to refuse his grace, not to receive it. And so one of the, one of the chief benefits of, really practical benefits of understanding this, of grasping that it's only God's sovereignty that determines our eternal life is that it keeps us from second-guessing. keeps us from second-guessing other people's salvation. I mean, Christians, let's be honest, love to do that. Love to think, well, maybe he's not really a Christian. Maybe she's not really a Christian. And don't get me wrong, there's a place for church discipline in this process and Walking with somebody when they're struggling with sin and starting to, you know, and that will uncover sometimes uh, a persistent lack of desire to follow the Lord. I mean, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen, but, you know, when we kind of are flippantly guessing who's in and who's out, when we pretend, and look, even church discipline is at best our provisional idea of what the truth might be. Because even when, that, even when that gets difficult, we don't know the person's heart, for sure. It's the Lord who knows. And we do well not to try to play the Holy Spirit, but to trust in Him to be the one who does His work. And listen, it keeps us from second-guessing ourselves all the time. I mean, some of us are never really wondering, like maybe we grew up in the, in the faith and, you know, we profess it now and never really thought about like, well, maybe I'm not really a Christian. But there are some folks who are wondering all the time. I wonder if I really am. I mean, I've got this persistent struggle with sin that doesn't seem to go away. I feel this constant shame. 
Maybe you've heard that story. Maybe that's something you struggle with and wonder about. And what Jesus is telling us is that it is the Spirit who works. And we do well not to be so obsessed with ourselves, but to turn our attention to Jesus. I'm not saying we should be callous about our sin and just kind of blow it off. But recognize that what the Spirit is doing is not, is not to make us the kind of people that no longer need Jesus. It is to make us those who are more and more dependent on Him. And I recognize that that's a little bit of a short answer. And maybe if that's you, we can talk about it further <laughs> at some point. Uh, the particulars of any person's struggle, I know, are always unique. And yet, this is what we're told to do, is not to turn towards ourselves and start to think, well, am I deserving enough? Am I good enough? Have I gone far enough in the amount of time that I've been a Christian? And instead, to focus our attention on how good Jesus is, on how lovely He is, how wonderful He is, and let that do its work. Calvin, again, talking about election, warns us away from this kind of guesswork. And it puts it so well. He says, if anyone with carefree assurance breaks into this place, he will not succeed in satisfying his curiosity. And he will enter into a labyrinth from which he can find no exit. We're not invited to place to second guess. We're invited to leave it in his hands. Instead, Calvin points us back to God's word to find what he says there and teaches there clearly to us. Invites us, and this is so important, into prayer. Because a rich grasp of God's sovereignty would drive us not to put forward more and more effort to earn our assurance, but rather drive us to our knees to bring our hearts before the Lord. And when we are concerned about others, not to judge them, but to bring them before the Lord, to ask Him to work in their lives. An active grip on God's sovereignty means we actually go to Him and not to put ourselves in a position to judge others, not even ourselves. So we receive that life then that is promised by the Spirit, which is not under our control, but what's under His. But there is a sign given by which we know whether we have received the Spirit. This is important. Nicodemus is kind of, his head is spinning at this point. By the time you get to verse 9, how can these things be? He, this is blowing up all his categories. And Jesus says, and I think the best way to understand in verse 11, when he says, we speak of what we know. Uh, again, this is another place where commentators are kind of like, why does he go to plural there? I don't know. I think the best way to understand that is because Nicodemus had started out by saying, well, we know that you are a teacher. And I think Jesus is sort of... Uh, 
rhetorically giving it back to him. <laughs> well, we know what we've seen. Because he goes on then to talk about himself and how he has descended from heaven. And so he is the witness that needs to be listened to. He's giving testimony about himself. In fact, he was sent by the Father, and what he will tell us later in the Gospel of John is he is the one who will send the Spirit. And what he tells us is, because he's descended, he has come to be lifted up. And he draws on a story from Numbers 21. Now, I know Numbers is probably not on steady rotation in your Bible reading, but this is a story from when the Israelites had left in the book of Exodus from Egypt, and they were wandering around in the desert, and uh, they are constantly grumbling against God. I mean, this is just a, a routine thing comes up over and over and over again. And in one of these occasions, in Numbers 21, they grumble against God and all these poisonous snakes start showing up in the camp, uh, which becomes a problem, obviously. Uh, and what Moses is told is, look, you're going to put a bronze snake on the top of your staff, and anyone who looks up to your staff when you're holding it up will be healed. In other words, if they trust in what the Lord will do, they will be healed. So that's the story, but there's another pretty clear verbal illusion here by the idea of the, of the Son of Man being lifted up. And it goes back to Isaiah, to one of the prophets, and to one of the most important parts of Isaiah, the end of chapter 52 and chapter 53, a section often called uh, the suffering servant. And the New Testament quotes it and alludes to it over and over and over again because it so clearly describes what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. And we're told this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations. And that idea of sprinkling is the blood of the sacrifice. In other words, the idea is the suffering servant will be put on display. And Jesus is clearly connecting these two ideas, right? That just like Moses, you know that story about when Israel grumbled. Nicodemus sounds pretty grumbly, doesn't he? <laughs> By the end of the story. He's saying, you know that story of when our people grumbled in the wilderness and how God provided something and if, as long as they trusted and looked to it, they would be healed. And you know the prophecy. That's what I'm going to do. I will be the one lifted up. Again, these illusions are thick <laughs> here and I'm sure that Nicodemus didn't really understand it, but I wonder what he thought when he saw Jesus on the cross. I wonder if he thought back to this very moment about being lifted up, about that allusion to Isaiah 52 and 3. But what Jesus is telling him and what he's telling you is that the sign that the Spirit is at work in your life is that you look to what God has provided 
by his son. In other words, I know that we've talked about sovereignty and we talked about how God is the one who does this and we shouldn't be second guessing or anything like that. But he is saying that doesn't mean it's all just a mystery. Saying the way that you can have confidence is if you trust in what the Son has done. Because that is what the Spirit does. In fact, John, the writer of this gospel, wrote several letters which show up later in the New Testament. And in 1 John 4, this is exactly what he says about the Spirit. He says, uh, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. All right, so test the spirits. And by this, you know the Spirit of God. Here it is, the test. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess this is not from God. That's the test of the Spirit. Does it lead us into faith in Jesus or not? If you want to know if the Spirit is at work, are you being led into faith in Jesus? That really is the litmus test. There's no magic involved. (laughs) There's no secret knowledge that you must attain. Do you trust in what Jesus has done? That is the question. And that is the cure. Because what the Spirit does while He is the one who works in us is apply what Jesus has actually accomplished on the cross. So that what we talk about as eternal life, as spiritual life, as a life worth living, is a life in which we live in Christ and live into what Christ is making us. In other words, again, the work of the Spirit is not to make us the kind of person that no longer needs Jesus, but the kind of person that grows deeper into their need for Jesus. And a healthy life is not one in which we become independent of God, but where we become more dependent on God. We become more dependent on what Jesus has done. This is eternal life that we receive because Jesus has accomplished everything. You don't need to give anything more. You don't need to do anything more. All you need is Him. And what you're called to live into is not more contributions to what Jesus has done, but more dependence on him, more comfort and confidence that he is the one that's at work, that he is the one who has sent that very spirit that breathed life into you. And this is what's on offer. So listen, if you're a Christian and you've known this stuff for your whole life, and you've heard this, and you know, next week we'll get to John 3.16, and you've heard that quoted a million times, and maybe, you know, Maybe you held that on a poster at a football game or something. I don't know. If you've heard this stuff a million times, look, the point is, don't forget it. That your life is not your own. But instead, you have life in Christ, which cannot be shaken. And he will see through what he has begun. And if you never believed it, or maybe you're not sure if you believed it, you're somewhere that's hard to define, fair enough. But the way for you is to ask about Jesus.
It is not to try to penetrate the mysteries of God's sovereignty, but rather to ask, who is this Jesus? What has he has done? What on earth does his crucifixion and resurrection mean for me? And all you need to do is trust. That is all we have to do. We never stop living by faith in what Jesus has accomplished. We never stop looking to what he has done. And even as we grow as a Christian, it is always looking to what Jesus has done, looking for him to give more. Not for us to give more, but for him to give more. This is the good news. This is the love that never fails. This is the love that is always satisfying and is never satisfied. For it always promises more. A love divine. A love, all love's excelling. Beyond all of them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your love is better than life. We thank you that your love never ends. We thank you that your love is not dependent on who we are, but it is who you are. So would you pour out your love into us by your spirit, even as you have promised in your word, Teach us to find your love in no other place but in the work of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.